Hi, this is Kate Taylor, and my latest CD is Why Wait? And we together are listening to the fantastic podcast, Follow Your Dream. We'll catch you around the band. Everyone has a dream. Robert Miller is a musician who had a dream to become a rock star. He followed his dream and he succeeded. If you're ready to pursue and succeed at your dream, then listen up and get inspired and motivated to take action today. Welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Follow Your Dream podcast with listeners in 200 countries. I'm Robert Miller, your host. My guest today is Mary Lou Falcone, an internationally renowned classical music publicist and strategist who for over 50 years has helped guide the careers of top-tier artists like Van Clyburn, Renee Fleming, Sir George Solti, and James Taylor. And she's also advised various institutions like Carnegie Hall and the Philadelphia Orchestra and the New York Philharmonic and the Vienna Philharmonic. She is truly the classical queen. And on a separate note, Mary Lou has become an advocate for Lewy body dementia awareness following her husband's diagnosis and passing from this condition. We'll talk about that as well. And for all you regular listeners here, you know that I feature a song of mine in every episode underneath the introduction and at the end. And I always try to make that song relevant somehow to my guest. And in this instance, I have chosen my song, My Love, from the album Bobby M. and the Paisley Parade that I released last year. It's a love song, which I wanted to play for Mary Lou and her late husband. So Mary Lou Falcone, welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Thank you for having me on and thank you for that song selection. It sounds beautiful. Well, it's a song that I wrote for my wife, so I figured that it would work for you and your husband. That touches me. Thank you. All right. So you've had quite a career. I haven't been nearly as active in the classical music area as I have in you know the popular and jazz areas. But I go up to a place called Tanglewood every year, which I'm sure you're familiar with. This is in the Berkshire Mountains of Massachusetts. And to me, it's a classical haven. Uh, you sit outside underneath the trees, you listen to the Boston Symphony, and you've got world-class artists all over the place every single week. In fact, one of your former clients, or maybe a current client, Renee Fleming, played this year. She filled in for Yo-Yo Ma, who I think had COVID, and she came in at the last minute. So tell me, how did you get involved in the classical music end of things? Oh, well, I started as a performer. I went to the Curtis Institute of Music in Philadelphia at age 17 and uh, studied opera, concert, literature, etc., and had a career for about eight years as an opera singer and concert performer. But I am a caregiver by nature. And so I knew that the world of performing was not going to be my lifelong quest. I was too much involved in helping other people. It sounds a little bit altruistic, but but actually I knew myself very well. I knew that I needed to be behind the scenes or I wanted to be behind the scenes 
pushing the careers of others. And so that's how I, I entered the classical music world and ultimately began my company as a in public relations, as a publicist and strategist. You know, it's always remarkable to me when I see a classical artist perform, particularly the pianists who are the soloists along, or even the violinists, it could be any of the soloists, they memorize these half an hour pieces that have a zillion notes in them. And I'm always amazed because, you know, as a, a jazz musician myself, I'm always improvising. And I'm saying to myself, aren't there any these places where they just kind of forget what they're doing? They're out of place or something like that. It never seems to happen. How is that? I think the training starts so young, especially with with piano or violin or, or the instruments. Uh, with voice, it's always later. You don't you don't really start to study in earnest until you're in your late teens. But you you focus so hard on what you're doing. It's a way of training your mind, and you just you embrace it. You live it. You sleep it. You eat it. I mean, it's just it's it's your life. And it's all consuming. I taught at Juilliard for 22 years. Uh, and the course that I taught there was called Reality, Reality for Singers. And basically, I would ask, how many of you want to, to perform? And every hand in the place went up. And then I would say, all right, now, how many of you need to perform more than anything else in the world? And half the hands went down. I've been told in years uh, that followed that, that that was the most frightening question they were ever asked because need versus want, it's a really important factor here. And when you need to do it, everything, your every fiber of your being goes into it, period, the end. Yes. And that's how you do it. I agree with you. There's a compulsion that enters into the scene where you just have to do it. People have asked me, and I've talked about with other guests on the podcast, whether they're self-starters or did they have to get pushed into music or whatever it was, the creative arts that they were involved in. Almost everyone that's at a world-class level, I can't think of anyone, in fact, that went the other way. They all said it was in them from the beginning. They didn't have to be pushed to practice. They didn't have to be pushed to get into the field. It, they just had to do it. Yeah, absolutely. And in my uh, very specific case, I knew, Robert, that I didn't need it. I didn't need to perform. I needed to communicate. That was different. But I didn't need to be out front as a performer with the applause. As a matter of fact, when I realized that my greatest singing moments were at the back of a church when no one knew who I was, that told me a lot. So you made the transition from the front of the stage to behind the scenes. Was that a tough transition for you? Not at all. I got very, very lucky. I kept looking for what other avenues were out there. You know, everybody says, well, you can teach or you can be a librarian or whatever. And I thought, no, there has to be something else. And I was performing in St. Paul, Minnesota with the opera company. And I had an opportunity to run a photo shoot because somebody didn't show up. And I was asked, you know, can you do this? I said, sure, I can do this. I ran the photo shoot and I went home and I thought, whoa, wait a minute. Behind the scenes, this is really interesting that you talk about other people, you arrange things for other people. I can do this. So I went to the general manager and said, you know, thank you for my, my roles. Thank you for next season's opportunity. I accept all of it. But in my spare time, would you allow me to just give a pair of hands in the PR office so I could find out what this is all about? And he said, I have a better idea. 
He came to New York, and this was November of 1973, so 50 years ago. And he said, you know, I've been watching you. I know you like challenges. I'd like you to become the national and international PR director for our company. When I got my jaw off the floor or out of the plate of food I was eating, I said, you know, you're crazy. I don't know anything about this. And he just said, I have a feeling. Just say yes. We'll be your first client. You'll have to get others. This is not a full-time position. You know, we are a client, singular client. But just say yes and go figure it out. And that was the beginning of my PR business. What a fortunate way to get involved, okay? Unbelievable. And I knew nothing. What I knew music. And I knew my colleagues. And I knew how they felt. That I knew. That you can't be taught. And I think that that's very, very important because I have found, for example, on this podcast, I can speak to famous musicians as a peer because I'm a musician too. We speak the same language. And I think when you're involved as you were in classical music as a singer and as a performer, you have an ability to relate to the artists that others don't have if they don't have that background. Absolutely true. And the trust level. My colleagues who hired me, and they weren't singers, they were mainly instrumentalists, but they they trusted that I was one of them. That's that's why they hired me. Not because I had great knowledge of publicity, because I had zero. But, (laughs) you know, I was fearless. I would call and introduce myself and say, I'm new. And, you know, would you see me? And in those days, we're talking the 70s, people said yes. And they helped me. So other than that symphony orchestra, who was your first individual client? My first individual client was the director, Frank Corsaro, who also ran the actor's studio, was a Broadway director and an opera director. So he was my first individual client. Okay. And he was he was married to my college roommate. I mean, talk about nepotism. Here we go. That didn't hurt. That didn't hurt. But he had also... Um, This is sort of a a sweet story. When I met him for the first time, he was about to marry my college roommate. And uh, he said to me, you're the the gal who cooks lasagna, right? I said, yeah, that's me. He said, well, I want to invite a bunch of my friends over and uh, you'll cook us some lasagna. I said, great, happy to do it. Well, his friends were Bob Holton from Bellwood Mills, the publisher, Lee Hoiby, the composer, and Lamford Wilson, the playwright. And they were all collaborating on a new opera called Summer and Smoke, based on the Tennessee Williams play. And during the dinner, somebody said, well, it was Lanford Wilson who said to me, gee, you look like a character in our opera. Do you sing? And I said, yeah, I do. And he said, well, then let's hear you sing. This is midnight, lots of wine, lots of lasagna. I sing and I get the role. So I'm in the world premiere of Summer and Smoke, which is how I got to the St. Paul Opera to begin with. And the rest I've told you is is history. But that was a defining moment. And Frank Corsaro became, as I said, the husband of my my college roommate. And he became my first client. All right. But you cheated a little bit because you jumped to the front of the stage again. Yes, I did. Yes, I did. <laughs> um, but but that was 1971. And by 73, I was off stage. All right. I forgive you. Thank you. <laughs> I have to ask, I mean, you've got so many famous clients that you've had. So let's just kind of go through them one by one. How did you get to Van Cliburn? Tell us a little bit about that. Uh, Van Cliburn. 
there was a thing called the Van Cliburn, there still is, the Van Cliburn competition, piano competition. And they were looking for a publicist, a first publicist. And they had uh, gone to all of the heavy hitters in New York. And there were three of them, three women who were extraordinary. And someone told them that there was a new kid on the block. So they figured they better do their due diligence. They took each of these ladies to the very best restaurants in New York. And they took me to the coffee shop at the Sheraton Hotel, literally for a cup of coffee. But as fate would have it, I got to meet Van Cliburn. He took a real liking to me. And he hired me not only for the competition, but for his personal work as well. So it was just one of those moments where this extraordinary giant was open, trusted his his feelings, trusted his gut. And he not only became uh, a client, he became a lifelong friend. And at the end of his life, when he was dying and I went to say goodbye, he said as a final act, I want you to be the one who announces to the world that I'm gone. What a nice uh, story there for the arc of the whole story. And I'm guessing that, again, your background as a classical artist helped to seal that deal with him. Am I correct? Yes, he loved singers. Van was, if Van could have done anything in this world, he would have wanted to be a singer. He had a nice voice, but he didn't have a, a world-class voice. Of course, his talent was world-class as a pianist, as we all know. And he was he was also a humanitarian, so an extraordinary human being. But basically, I think that helped a lot, that I was a singer. And he knew I understood from a, a technical standpoint and an emotional standpoint what was going on. Yes. I'm wondering whether in those early days, did you uh, face discrimination being both a woman and also a newcomer to the business? Well, um, I'll address the newcomer to the business first, because uh, my colleagues were very skeptical. And in one instance, one very mean colleague titled me as a ruthless bitch, <laughs> which I thought was rather cruel and harsh because I was actually neither ruthless nor a bitch, um, or at least in my opinion, I wasn't. And um, I evidently I'd gotten a client that she wanted, and that was that was my sin. But other than that, I think many of them reached out to me to find out who I was. And one person in particular, Alex Williamson, who um, was a person who handled a lot of great people, including Maria von Trapp, it was Alex's idea for Maria von Trapp to write what became The Sound of Music. Mm. And Alex took me to lunch one day and she said, you know, everybody says you're really nice. So are you? And I said, well, you're going to have to take me out to lunch or are you out to lunch many, many more times. And you're going to have to answer that question for yourself. At the end of the day, her comment was, you know, you're the best after me, of course. And, and I loved that. I've always remembered that line because it just, it touched me very deeply. And, and most of my colleagues were wonderfully welcoming and, and, and warm. Isn't that nice? Being a woman didn't, uh, as far as I'm concerned, if there was discrimination, I didn't see it. There are a lot of times when the competition is not so kind, uh, like the one instance that you talked about, but it's nice to know that uh, in your profession, People gave you a good chance, and you obviously came through. 
They did. And and consequently, um, I have done that my whole career, and that is helped others get started and sent them clients along the way that, you know, you can't do everything. And so you share. Good for you. Hi, everybody. This is Robert Miller, your host. When I started the Follow Your Dream podcast two and a half years ago, we were in the throes of the pandemic. Everything was disrupted and the future was uncertain. Back then, I had only a goal for the podcast, to inspire people to follow their dream, just as I followed my musical dream. So I set forth on a new adventure. From that humble start, I'm pleased to say that the podcast has grown exponentially to the point where it now is ranked in the top 1% of all podcasts, has won awards, and has listeners in 200 countries. Imagine that. Each episode takes me and my guest on a world tour to thousands of listeners on every continent. And my guests are spectacular. I've had so many famous and accomplished musicians, actors, directors, photographers, and other creatives, people who followed their dream to success. The podcast is proof of my motto. You're never too old, and it's never too late to follow your dream. If you haven't done so yet, please subscribe to the podcast so you get each episode when it airs. And sign up for our weekly emails, which preview our episodes and much more. The links are all in the show notes. As always, I want to thank you for listening and keep on rocking. All right, let's move on to another person, Renee Fleming. I mentioned her before, a world-class singer. Tell us about your relationship with her. Renee Fleming is a very young singer, uh, came to me via her manager and another singer, Arlene Auger, who, who had taught her in, uh, in Frankfurt, in Germany, uh, when Renee was there on a Fulbright scholarship. And so Renee came to me in 1989, and we had a lovely talk, and I said, you're not ready. She came to me a second time in about 1992, and I said, you know, I, I love your talent. You're not ready. Hold on a second. You rejected Renee Fleming twice is what you're saying. I did. I did. <laughs> and the second time I said, you know, if you feel like you need this service now, you absolutely go to someone else. There's no, you know, no hard feelings here, but I am interested in you, but the timing has to be right. In other words, I'm not going to take money for just knowing what I can't do. I want the timing to be right so that when you're spending your hard-earned money on this service, I'm delivering something that I'm proud of for you. She said, no, I'm gonna wait. And so in 1995, she came to me with her then manager, Matthew Epstein, and the two of them sat down and outlined what was going to happen in the next 18 months to two years. And my comment was, now you're ready. Now we can do this. We started working in 95, and uh, we, we worked together for 15 years. I'm really proud to say we're still good friends. 
and she's one of the dearest people in my life. You really are the best, okay? You were able to reject her twice, and she came back, and you're still buddies. I like that. Yeah. All right. I have to ask about James Taylor, because he's the one that doesn't fit the rest of the names here. How did you get with James? All right. So James Taylor, I was in Tanglewood. I think the year was 2006. And uh, his personal assistant was a very dear friend of mine, Ellen Cusman. And Ellen called me and she said, I know you're in Tanglewood uh, incognito because I know you're here uh, meeting Gustavo Dudamel for the first time. And I know you're not supposed to be found, but I found you. So James and I have been talking. I want you to just come over and talk to James. Would you do that? I said, well, sure, I'll do that. It's James Taylor, and you're my friend. So I went to talk to him. What James wanted to talk about was a one-man band thing that he was doing. He had uh, the Palace Theater in New York booked for, I think, I don't know, weeks. I don't know how many weeks it was. And he was sort of making a, he never really left, but there was a, a point where he was not as, as um, visible as he had once been. And he was making a, a big kind of push to come back strongly. And so I said, well, why are you doing the Palace Theater? And he said, well, that's because what my, my managers and people have said I should do. And I said, you know, I actually think this is not my world, James, but I think that if you went to the Beacon Theater, did two nights only, sold out within minutes, which you would, because the Beacon Theater is smaller, it's, it's 1,500 seats, and it's not an extended run. You can only get you for two nights. And then by popular demand, you have to put on a whole slew of other nights. That to me is reigniting this career. And he looked at me and he said, you're right. Can I hire you? And I said, as what? You know, this is not my world. And he said, well, I just want your brain. Is that okay? And I said, yeah, that's okay. You can have my brain. As it turned out, we did we're able to do some publicity as well, uh, in addition to to ideas and things like that. And and we worked together for many years, just just as a, I was a resource for James, and and he was a phenomenal, open person to accept. I mean, a person from classical music coming in and saying to him, "This is what you should do." Are you kidding me? This is remarkable that he would even listen. Not only did he listen, he did it. P.S. The Beacon sold out, I think, within minutes. The line was around the block and then some, and they had to put on more shows. So what I had to say actually got fulfilled. Good for you. I mean, that's an extraordinary story. He's an extraordinary artist. I've told this story before. I'll just give you a quick vignette. I was in college in the late 60s, and uh, one night in the middle of the week, I went to uh, uh, one of the clubs in Boston with my roommate. And we went to a dump that was called the Psychedelic Supermarket. It was like a bomb shelter in Kenmore Square. And we walked in, maybe there were two other people in the place. And there was this kid that was playing guitar and singing and sitting on a stool. And it turned out to be James Taylor. This is before the Sweet Baby James album came out. And I sat there mesmerized for two hours, listening and watching. And I just knew that this guy was going to make it. And uh, of course, the rest is history, as they say. Yeah. And he owes so much to you. Well, not really. I mean, he owes so much to the fact that he is not only a consummate performer, he works harder than any 
everybody I have ever met. You know, what he makes look like, it's just easy. He's in his living room. He's just sharing with you and, and, and being there for you. The amount of rehearsal that goes into this, the amount of time he spends, and the way he keeps his voice. I mean, I'm I'm so impressed with his technique, his vocal technique, because for me, it's genius and it's flawless. Well, you're right about that. Okay, I want to move on to the other subject that we're going to be discussing, and that is the Lewy body dementia awareness. Tell us a little bit about what that is for people that don't know and how it affected you and your husband. Okay. First of all, Lewy body dementia is not well known. The questions that I get frequently are, Lewy what? And how do you spell that? And by the way, just for your listening audience, you spell it L-E-W-Y. Right. So I felt that that um, this, this was a disease that needed more attention. Uh, I got involved with it because my husband was diagnosed with Lewy body dementia in 2019, although I had seen signs of things before that. And he died in July of 2020. So it was a very short haul. Mm. But generally speaking, Lewy body dementia is the second most progressive form of dementia after Alzheimer's disease, affecting 1.4 million people in America alone. And if you take ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease, muscular dystrophy, and cerebral palsy, and put them all together, the aggregate number does not equal the amount of people who have Lewy body in this country. Staggering. Mm. People may know a little bit about it because Robin Williams, whom, as we know, took his life, but what was found in autopsy was that he was riddled with Lewy body dementia. That's what was wrong with him, and he didn't know it. And had he known it, he would have had an answer to why he was behaving as he was, why he was feeling what he was. Is Bruce Willis in that category as well? No. Bruce Willis has something called frontotemporal dementia. Dementia is the umbrella. And under the umbrella are all these spokes, and these are all diseases under, under that umbrella. They are their cousins, if you will, but but there but there there are distinctions between each. The one that's most known is Alzheimer's, of course, and that's because a lot of research and money has been going into Alzheimer's. Lewy body is a disease that that is not rare, but not well known, and that's my advocacy is. First of all, obliterating the two questions that I just uh, alluded to, Louis, what and how do you spell that? And, and bringing awareness to this disease, not only for the layperson, but for the medical profession as well. You'd be amazed at how many people in the medical profession don't even know it. I'm sure you're right about that. And it's unfortunate in this country that all the money and attention gets put into those diseases that seem to affect the greatest mass of people where the pharmaceutical companies can develop something that enriches them by making that medication. So the orphan diseases or the lesser known diseases just don't get the same amount of attention, do they? Exactly. And celebrity is part of this too, Robert. You know, if there is a celebrity who has the disease, I give Bruce Willis and his family enormous amounts of credit for coming out and telling us 
that it's frontotemporal uh, dementia that, that he has, because this will this will bring attention to it. This will bring more money to it. This will bring more more to it that we need. And in the in the case of Louis body dementia, Robin Williams, I know would have done that. I mean, I feel that in my heart that he I don't know it for a fact, but I feel that he would have had known. And certainly his widow did call attention to it after the fact. And that was that was huge. Is there any treatment that's available for Louis body? No, no, there is nothing to slow it down. And there's nothing to cure it at the moment. And that's why we need awareness first, attention first, followed by then hopefully there is a celebrity family that will come and step up to the plate, plate like Robin Williams' widow did. Dina Merrill died of Louis body dementia. Estelle Getty did. Frank Corsaro, whom I alluded to before as, as one of my first clients, also had Louis body dementia. And my husband, Nikki Zan, who was a, uh, a phenomenal artist, rock and roller in the 50s, but an artist by profession after that, whose work hangs in the Victorian Albert Museum, for instance, and he was credited as being the inspiration for Roy Lichtenstein. So Fantastic. there we go. You have had a fascinating life in front of the stage, behind the stage, with all the people that we've discussed and your advocacy now. I'm sure your husband would be so proud of you that you're doing this. We have been speaking here with Mary Lou Falcone. Mary Lou, I want to thank you so much for being on the podcast. It's been a wonderful episode. I appreciate it. And if I can just say for anybody out there, you're not alone uh, in being a caregiver. We're, we're all behind you. We're all with you. And I have written a book also called I Didn't See It Coming, Scenes of Love, Loss, and Louis Body Dementia, which uh, actually launches on October the 3rd. And so it's got a lot of helpful hints in it, as well as a lot of the stories that I just told you. Terrific. Thank you so much for being a guest on the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. Now we're going to listen to that song of mine that started off the episode. It's called My Love. I want to thank you all for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss another inspiring episode. You can connect with Robert at robert at followyourdreampodcast.com. And you can hear more from his band at projectgrandslam.com and at thepgsstore.com. Warmth of your heart, so many
stars that shine up above shine for you my love when we first met when we held hands hearts beat as one I am I love you oh so much, my love.